Okay, Jesse, last week's grandma and grandpa killers were truly disgusting. What do you have for me this episode? Today, we'll be talking about the murder of Zona Heaster Shoe and the only time in United States history that a ghost testimony was used to convict a murderer. Ooh. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about whirlwind romances, ghostly revenge, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we're thrilled as always this week to welcome and shout out a new set of incredible patrons. Barbara T and Anna R and Casey M and Lori M and also today's story, which I'll get into in just a little bit, is a Patreon request. So thank you so much, friend and patron Amy H. And then before we get into the story, though, I'm going to introduce our final organization that we are donating to for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And Andy, this week we are donating and highlighting National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. Their mission is to end violence against Native women and have a vision of restoring sovereignty for tribes to hold perpetrators accountable. They are committed to providing national leadership in this work by lifting up the collective voices of grassroots advocates in tribal communities. Very happy that we're donating to this. And I think that Heather raised this to us, right? Yes. So big thanks to Heather, who's now works with Love Murder, but she's a longtime friend and a longtime our right hand Yeah, no, she's everything. A right-hand girl. (laughs) Exactly. So big thanks to Heather, our buddy forever, and love murder everything. She doesn't really have a title. (laughs) Just everything that Andy and I and Nathaniel aren't doing, Heather is doing. Uh, So thank you for that great organization. This is definitely another one that, just like last week's, Andy, that I hope we can circle back to and do some content around and maybe speak with them directly about ways we can get involved because it's such an important organization. Yeah, that would be incredible. Okay. Well, it's Halloween or almost Halloween. Yay. And I hope you guys are so spooky and ready with your costumes and you've got all your candy out and you're going to go wild this weekend. But to get you ready, I have a ghostly true crime tale for you. We're going to be on the way to each other when this comes out. (laughs) Yes, One day away from each other. Yep. We will be mere like less than 24 hours away from each other at this point. So Andy and I are going to South America together. So we will be there. I'm sure we'll post some pictures, guys. But Andrea, first, we got to get into the spooky season today. Are you feeling it? I am so ready. Mary Jane Heaster was grieving. Her only daughter, her best friend, her beloved Zona was dead. Zona had only been in her 20s, cut down in the prime of her life. 
As if her death wasn't bitter enough, Mary Jane had reason to suspect that the death had not been an accident. She felt deeply in her gut that her daughter's husband of three months, a handsome braggart named Edward Trout Shoe, was responsible. What a name. It's something. She couldn't shake the feeling that he had murdered Zona in cold blood. She had heard tell of another wife of his who had also met a mysterious end. And his behavior during the funeral had furthered Mary Jane's suspicion. He had guarded the corpse of her daughter zealously until the body was in the ground, and then he refused to take the sheet or pillow that had cushioned Zona in the coffin. He further refused to engage with the family or participate in any of the memorializing. When Mary Jane went to launder the sheet, the water turned an ominous scarlet red, despite the fact that the sheet had appeared clean and white earlier in the day. Ooh. A sign Mary Jane swore, a sign that Zona was trying to tell her that she had met a bloody death. That evening, she lay down her head, not in the family bed she shared with her husband, but instead in Zona's narrow childhood bed. There she prayed and prayed for Zona to give her another sign, to somehow tell her the truth, to pierce the veil and let her mother know that either she was at peace or that she required justice, justice that only an impassioned mother could provide. With the prayers still on her lips, she fell asleep in the cold, dark room, only to be awoken by a glowing light. As she rubbed sleep from her eyes, she watched the light grow brighter and brighter until outstepped her daughter. Zona wore a sad expression and the dress that she'd been wearing on the day that she died. Mary Jane cried in both horror and relief to see the ghost of her child, and she begged Zona to tell her how she had died and if it had been at her husband's hands. In answer, the ghost did not speak, but twisted her neck unnaturally, spinning her head as though like an owl. Ugh. Yeah, very horror movie trope. I'm like almost wondering if this is where those stories come from, this idea of the twisting of the head in a way that shouldn't be able to twist that way. Mary Jane gasped, clutching her own throat, now believing that her daughter was trying to say that her neck had been broken. The glow faded, as did Zona, and the ghostly visitor was gone, but she would return for each of the next three nights to her mother in her childhood bedroom, growing strong enough to share the chilling story of her last moments among the living. We've all heard tales about earthbound spirits stuck here due to unfinished business, and Zona Heaster Shoe had some. She was going to catch the sick son of a bitch who had murdered her. And who better to turn to for an assist than her mama? Yep. Today, we will be talking about the 1897 West Virginia murder of Zona Heaster Shoe and the only known case in the United States in which a ghost helped convict their own murderer. So badass. This is wild. So again, big thanks to one of our favorite listeners and patrons, Amy H., who brought this case to my attention months ago and said, hey, I think this would be a pretty cool Halloween episode. (laughs) You think? (laughs) So well done, Amy. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. I was so fascinated by this case, Andy, that I went a little ham in my research. I know I always do, but I think I went especially ham this time. (laughs) I read two separate books. The Haunting of Zona Heaster Shoe by Nancy Richmond and Misty Murray Walkup, and The Man Who Wanted Seven Wives by Katie Letcher Lyle. 
Both were excellent, though, with all things historic, they occasionally contradicted each other. And when in doubt, I think I kind of leaned a little bit more towards Katie Letcher Lyle's account because she interviewed multiple descendants of both Zona and Edward Trout Shoe, as well as a 99-year-old woman who had been 12 at the time of the murder and could recall wow. all. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah. So she said that she didn't know specifically the woman who was murdered, but she knew basically everyone by how you know people in a small town and was following the trial when she was 12 years old. Wow. Which is crazy. Obviously, she put a lot of insanely thorough research into that. But both books are great and have good lore telling as well. I also listened to Morbid's episode 337 about the Greenbrier ghost, which was great as always. And guys, there's even a drunk history on this story. Oh my God, that's amazing. Did you watch it? Of course I did. <laughs> of course I did. Drunk History Season 6, Episode 9, if you guys want to look it up. And it's the same episode that has Phineas Gage in it, which we've talked about in our brain damage episode. He's the guy with the railroad spike through his head. So it was a twofer. You get two historic love murder adjacent stories. That's... <laughs> I also think like one of my life's goals is to get to do a Drunk History. No, I know. I think we should just do one. We should just do one for maybe for Patreon. <laughs> it's so funny. So yeah, with all of my many sources out of the way, I think let's get into this by talking about lovely Zona. Elva Zona Heaster, so she goes by her middle name, but that name is great, Elva Zona, was born in 1875 to a respectable Baptist farmer named Jacob Hedges Heaster and his wife, Mary Jane Robinson Heaster. The couple had eight children, all of whom were boys except for their second born, which was, of course, daughter Zona, as they called her. Zona and Mary Jane were extremely close, which makes sense given that she was the only girl with seven brothers. Yeah. And the morbid gals described them as kind of a Gilmore Girls relationship, that they were that close, which I could totally see. The Heaster family as a whole was pretty tight-knit. By all accounts, they were well-liked by the community and considered an honest and caring family who provided quality farm products to the town. Zona was a free-spirited brunette beauty who grew up with a reputation of being lively and able to hold her own with seven brothers. She was also said to always put a smile on other people's faces. When she was in her late teens, she was accompanying her family to a general store where they sold goods, and she crossed paths with a handsome laborer named George Woldrich. The two young people began to meet frequently in town and eventually fell in love. Unfortunately, as illicit rendezvous are wont to do, the liaison resulted in an unplanned pregnancy. Oh, no. Authors Richmond and Murray Walkup wrote that both George and Zona's families prayed over it and decided that the young people were too immature to be parents. According to their account, it was decided that Zona would have the baby and raise it with the Heisters, while George's family provided financial support. Which is a very enlightened approach for 1890s. Totally. Yeah, we've had cases up until the 1960s or 70s where people are trying to force young people who get pregnant to get married. Yeah. And then they like essentially just kick them out of the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or just kick them out of the house for that matter too. You're right. But yeah, we're not entirely sure if this is true though, because there is a discrepancy in the account of how this all went down, what the families wanted and actually what happened to the baby. So I'm going to trigger warning child loss for you guys. Whether it happened or not, just so you know, you can just skip ahead a little bit. So according to one account, 
they decided this. It was amicable. However, Zona unfortunately lost the baby. The baby was stillborn or died directly after birth. And the baby was supposedly buried without a name or a marker because they had not yet been baptized. According to Katie Lyle's account, Mary Jane Heaster had wanted Zona to marry George. So Zona had been less interested in getting married than her family did. Her family wanted them to get married to legitimize the baby. But it sounded like neither George or Zona were super excited about this prospect and they refused. In this account, the baby survived and Zona placed the little one with an adoptive family, though it wasn't clear if it was George's family or a different family altogether. Okay. In either case, it was a traumatic event in Zona's life. She lost her baby either way. And how old is she? So there was also varying accounts of how old she was. So, yeah. So some people said she was 16 when this happened. I also read that she was closer to 20. And then based on her age when she died and people saying how far along it had been since her baby was born, she could have been as old as 20 to 23, I think. So it's a big range depending on who you're believing, (laughs) which is why even like when at the beginning I was like, she was only in her 20s because I'm not entirely sure exactly how old she was. Because I also heard differing accounts of when she was born. But based on her gravestone, she was 23 when she was murdered. So sad. Yeah, it's really sad. And also, so obviously she's traumatized by losing her child. She also lost her relationship with George. I'm sure tensions were high in her family, but also in the greater community, because I did read that some rural communities were a little bit more relaxed, interestingly, about some of this stuff. Like they were just kind of more like, well, shit happens. But still, it's the 1890s. So I doubt like, It was great. And her family was pretty religious. So this was still a hard time in her life, even though she had a supportive family to get her through. And as a result, she kind of withdrew from society for a little while, for roughly a year and a half after losing the baby. And after several months, she finally felt up to venturing back into town, helping out with bringing some of their farm products into the town and socializing once more. And it was on one of these jaunts that she met the new blacksmith from town, a tall drink of water with good looks named Edward Trout Shoe. So let's talk trout. Erasmus Stibling Shoe, that's his given name. Yep. It was born around 1861 to parents Jacob and Elizabeth Shoe, Spelled exactly like 1980s actress Elizabeth Shue. <laughs> Cocktail shout out. <laughs> yes, exactly. And was called by his nickname Trout for most of his life. Everyone called the little boy Trout because apparently he had a, quote, delicate constitution and was spoiled by his mother and siblings. And I'm, so I'm guessing that when he didn't get what he wanted, he pouted, hence Trout. Wow. That was me connecting the dots there. <laughs> Morbid said it was just because he was a stinky fish man. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) But I found no evidence of that in my research. (laughs) (laughs) Later on, he also adopted the name Edward. So he's also known as Edward Trout Shoe. And we're just going to call him straight up Trout. Trout was the fifth of nine children. He was (laughs) so many children. Ultimate middle child. He's the ultimate middle child. The most, the most middle child that ever existed. And he was known for being the center of attention all of the time. 
That's not even a dad joke. I don't know what that is. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. So he was known for being the center of attention and having a bad temper when he didn't get what he wanted. He grew into a handsome man. He's often described as big, tall, and powerfully built. But in reality, he was only about five, six and a half or five, seven. <laughs> I think even in the late 1800s was pretty average for a man. I mean, they weren't... <laughs> It's only a, a couple hundred years ago, not even. I don't think they were like hobbitses back then. Still, he had dark hair, he had strong arms, he had piercing blue eyes, and he was allegedly a skilled artist. One of his descendants still has a butter paddle that he crafted for his sister's wedding when he was only 11. And she says the workmanship is still very fun. What is a butter paddle? I don't know. I was hoping you would know. No, why would I know what a butter paddle is? I don't live in the country. I guess I should know. I'm assuming it has something to do with churning butter. That would be my assumption. Jacob Chu, Trout's father, was an accomplished blacksmith and a wealthy and prominent man. It was Jacob who encouraged Trout to eventually follow in his footsteps to smithing. The occasion of Trout's first marriage, again, there are differing accounts. One book called her Esty as a nickname, while another said that her nickname was Allie. But what we know for sure is that his first wife was a young woman named Ellen Estelle Catlip. And it seems like her parents may not have been crazy about the marriage. Though her age was listed as 22 on the marriage certificate, there was speculation that Esty was only 16 or perhaps even younger at the time of the marriage. All right. She had apparently met Trout while visiting her uncle who lived nearby and was courting Trout's older sister himself. Trout convinced the young woman to elope with him without the consultation of her family and ended up calling this reverend to the Shoe homestead around Thanksgiving 1885. And Katie Lyle does editorialize. She wrote in her book, she gives so many sources, but she kind of makes a narrative through line. So some of the dialogue is obviously imagined and created. But essentially, she wrote this from the perspective of the reverend. And there was a real guy who did write about this experience, that he basically went there. He was in the house. The girl seemed very young. And Trout wasn't there because he was going to fetch the marriage license in the next town over. But it was getting really late and he hadn't come back. And he finally comes back and it's almost midnight and the girl's parents aren't there. Something just seemed very off about this wedding. The reverend is already kind of feeling like this is weird, but he doesn't want to upset Trout's father, who is a prominent man in town and important. So he's like, sure, let's go for it. And then he sees the marriage license and it's only good in Greenbrier County and they're in Pocahontas County. So he's like, oh, good. I have a reason to get out of this. I don't have to do this wedding anymore. See, I can't do it because I can't perform it because we're not in Greenbrier County. And at that point, Trout's like, well, let's just all walk a mile down the road, cross the street, and then we'll be in Greenbrier and you can just marry us out in the middle of the cold, dark night on the road. Uh, that's definitely how young women imagine their wedding being. <laughs> God. Terrible. Yeah. And he was the one who thought it was strange that she was listed as 22 on the marriage license because she looked a lot younger. There was multiple sources that said something along the lines of that. But yeah, that guy said, no, thank you. I don't care if you're going to be mad at me. I am not marrying this woman off without her family being here when I don't believe she's actually as old as you're saying. And it's in the middle of the cold, dark night. Yeah. No. On the roadside. Absolutely not. So he said no. But unfortunately, that did not stop Trout, and they found another man of the cloth to wed them the very next day. Wow. Determined. 
Very determined. Esty and Trout were officially married on November 24th, 1885. And it appeared that Esty's family did eventually come around to the marriage, or maybe they just want to keep an eye on Trout because they let the couple move in with them for a little while while Esty and Trout built a log cabin on her family's property. Once settled into the new home, Trout and Esty welcomed a baby girl named Goethe Lucretia on February 22nd. Wow. (laughs) The names in this are great. They are phenomenal. Every single one of them. Wow. You know, people think that like these like insane, unique names that people are naming their kids these days are something new, but this story will show you otherwise. She was born on February 22nd of 1887. The marriage was deeply troubled by this time. There were allegations of infidelity and abuse. There was at least one story about Trout getting kidnapped by a mob of men and thrown into an icy lake where they they literally broke the ice and put him in the lake, but he survived. But I heard that there was two, there was two differing accounts for why that happened. One was that he was cheating on SD with another woman. He got that woman pregnant and her brothers and family did that to him for revenge, essentially for seducing their sister, daughter, niece, and putting a baby in her that was now illegitimate because he was already married. But then there was another story that Katie Letcher Lyles told that said that it was mostly a group of men in the town who had witnessed him beating his wife, Esty. And that oh. there was, yeah. So horrible either way. It's horrible either way. Yeah. There was evidence that he had horsewhipped her. What? Yeah. Yeah. It, I wrote down, Andy, l- literally, in either case, not a good look for old Trout. No. Trout can put his floppy trout face back in the water. <laughs> that's where he belonged. That's maybe that's why they were doing it. There is evidence that Trout was abusive towards Esty and essentially abandoned her sometime after the birth of their daughter. According to official records, the couple divorced after four years of marriage in November of 1889. Esty said in the official divorce decree... He, without any cause, abandoned and deserted me. He said he wanted me to leave him. I said to him that I was not going to do any such thing, and he took his property away and threw what I had out of the house. He moved out when Gertie was about a year old, on or about the first to the middle of March 1888. Before the divorce was final, though, 28-year-old Trout was arrested for horse thievery and sentenced to two years in prison in April of 1889. Whoa, this guy... I know, he's a winner. He served only 20 months of his sentence due to good behavior and was allowed to leave on December 20th, 1890 to go home and be with his family for Christmas. His parents and siblings, not Esty, who was got the hell out of there. It is likely that the arrest and incarceration saved Esty from her husband's vengeful wrath and remained alive to safely raise their daughter. His next two wives would not be so lucky. Trout was living with his family in Pocahontas County and working as a laborer and blacksmith when he met wife number two in 1894. Lucy Ann Tritt was only about 16 years old, according to one report when she met 32-year-old Trout. But again, another account says she was 24. I believe that's what's on the marriage license here. So let's just say somewhere between 16 and 24. It was a relatively short courtship, and the couple was married in Greenbrier County on June 23rd of 1894. 
A few months later, Trout found work in Hillsborough in Pocahontas County, and the newlyweds moved into an old house near his new job. The winter was unusually harsh that year, resulting in a surprising number of snowstorms for West Virginia. On February 11th, Trout claimed that he was repairing damage on his roof that had been caused by the snow when tragedy struck. Trout claimed that he had been throwing old damaged bricks off the roof as he replaced... Yep, you can see where this one's going. Oh, yeah. Where, as he replaced them with new ones... When Lucy, his wife of eight months, came out of the house to bring her husband a drink of water. Not realizing that she was there, Trout tossed one of the bricks off the roof and managed to hit Lucy directly on the head. (sighs) So fucked up. So fucked up. Trout immediately fetched the local doctor who proclaimed that Lucy had died of the injury upon examination. A sheriff was called and Trout was questioned. Lucy's family was deeply suspicious, especially given that Trout was an ex-con and rumors abounded that he had abused his first wife. But there were no witnesses to the so-called accident and no way to prove that Trout had intentionally dropped the brick that killed Lucy, so no charges were filed. As soon as the ground was soft enough, Lucy was buried in the Whiting Cemetery on Droop Mountain, and Trout showed absolutely no sorrow at his young wife's passing. He, in fact, told a number of his friends that the end of his first two marriages did not bother him in the least because he knew it was his destiny to eventually have seven wives. Um, what? Yep, at the funeral. At the funeral of his wife of eight months, he told a few people... That it wasn't really a big deal that she was dead because he had the idea in his head that he was going to end up having seven wives throughout his life. Did a floating chicken in the forest tell him that? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just wondering where he where he found out about this. I don't know. He must have decided, like, seven. Seven's the number. Lucky seven. I have really no idea where he got it. But that's where the title of Katie Ledger Lyle's books comes from, The Man Who Wanted Seven Wives. Well, apparently he thought he could spare these two. On to the next one. According to Lucy's great niece, who was interviewed by Katie Lyle, family legend stated that Lucy's kinfolk drove out to Trout's house and delivered some country justice in the form of multiple bullets being shot into his house. Trout survived, but got the hell out of Dodge, quitting his job and drifting from place to place for the next year or so. This is when he adopted the name Edward to distance himself from his ex-con past, but also potentially to evade authorities and, I'm guessing, Lucy's family, who still wanted revenge. So this is his part where he's drifting from town to town. He's never staying in a place for more than a couple months until he was hired as a blacksmith in Zona's hometown in Greenbrier County. The blacksmith shop was a bit of a hangout spot for the young people in town. And when Zona, (laughs) this is a cool young spot. It's the peach pit. Oh, my God. And this is when Zona's recovering from losing her baby and she's coming back into town and she goes to the hot spot where the new sexy blacksmith is working and she was instantly attracted to him. She began making daily visits to the shop after their first meeting. Mary Jane was initially pleased that Zona was once again vibrant and enjoying her life. It was the first thing she had been excited about in a very long time. So she encouraged her to continue her visits as long as one of her brothers accompanied her and she knew she was safe. 
But her enthusiasm for Zona's new object of affection dampened considerably when she actually met Trout herself. Mary Jane found him to be an insufferable braggart and took umbrage at how forward he behaved with some of the younger girls in town, including some who were only in their early teens. Oh, he's a creep. Creep. She also suspected that he was a liar. In short, her mother's intuition was sounding the alarm bells. Yes. She begged Zona to reconsider courting Trout and eventually forbade her from seeing him. But of course, that did nothing except for make her want to see him more. Of course. Made the sneaking around even more fun. So it's, it's, you've got the excitement of the sneaking around. So that's like tipping off your romance-ometer there. And then you're also like being persecuted against like Romeo and Juliet. So it's like you guys against the world. It is a recipe for disaster. When Mary Jane and her husband discovered the deception, they tried to put their foot down because they've already been through one unplanned pregnancy with her and one guy that turned out to be not that great. So they really are trying to avoid another one. But when they kind of said it's us or him, she goes, cool, Tim. Bye. See ya. Zona accepted Trout's proposal of marriage, and they eloped only three weeks after meeting. Yeah, that's a a Jesse. Hey, I I waited five long months, okay? Three weeks is crazy. That's a love murder red flag. They were married on October 20th, 1896. Zona wore a high-collared, wine-colored dress. Hey, October 20th? October 20th. That's today. Whoa. That's so funny. Oh, that's I just got chills. That's crazy. Yeah, so they were married on October 20th, 1896. So on the day that we were recording this, that was exactly 126 years ago. Wow. Zona wore a high-colored, wine-colored dress and wove, this sounds really pretty actually, wove wildflowers and fall leaves into her braid. Oh, I love that. For a fall wedding? That's so pretty. It's so you. If I had enough hair to do that, I so totally would. <laughs> Unfortunately, there was no wedding dinner or celebration reception type thing because Zona's family would have been responsible for that and they did not attend because they did not approve of the union. Zona moved into a small house that Trout had rented. But after only a matter of weeks, she realized that married life was not turning out the way that she had hoped. She was lonely and she was having a really hard time being estranged from her family, specifically her mother, whom she had always had a very close and warm relationship with. And I think at this time they were kind of communicating a little bit, but it was still very strained and... Mary Jane refused to come to her house because it was her husband's house. She's like, I'm not going to set foot in that place. So they were still, still had a very strained relationship at this point. To make matters worse, humorous and attentive Trout had turned surly, controlling, and demanding in the days after the wedding. Within a month or two of their elopement, Zona began to feel under the weather. She consulted with the town's doctor, Dr. George Knapp, who believed it was possible that she was pregnant and that's why she was feeling sick to her stomach, but it was too early for him to be able to tell for sure. Okay. On January 23rd, 1897, when the couple had been married for just three months, Trout was working in his blacksmith shop while Zona prepared a midday meal for her husband. He claimed that he was too busy to go home at this point. So he had too much work that day. He wasn't going to be able to make it home. 
However, he also knew that Zona was sick and she hadn't been feeling very well. So he asked a neighbor boy named Andy Jones to check in on his wife and gather eggs for them. Andy was the nine-year-old son of a freed former slave and had ran errands for the shoes on occasion before. Now, Andy told him that he was already busy working for the doctor. He was doing some errands for him and so that he would have to wait before he could check on Zona, but he would eventually do it. And this seemed to piss Trout off. He wanted him to go immediately. And over the next, I think, hour and a half, two hours, he kept checking on the boy so many times. Like, he could have gone home and checked on his wife in the times that it took for him to pester this child to go check on his wife. So he finally did so, and this was probably around 11-ish in the morning by the time the child got over there. Okay. So maybe she was preparing more of a breakfast meal. When Andy approached the house, he knew something was wrong immediately. As he came upon the front door, he noticed blood drops on the threshold. Uh. Opening up the door, he called inside and no one answered. And then he noticed another trail of blood drops leading to the dining room. And it was there that he discovered Zona's lifeless body stretched out at the base of the staircase. After confirming that she was dead, he backed out of the house and quickly sprinted to his mother's home. Once there, he was in such shock that he could barely speak. Oh my God. He's nine years old. Poor kid. When his mother pushed him saying, what's wrong? Come on, spit it out you got to talk to me here. He finally said that he basically said she's, she's gone. Something very bad happened to her. He said all the doors were closed and there was an air about the place that I didn't like. And then there she was stretched out on the floor, looking up at me through wide open eyes. She seemed to be laughing like what her facial expression was. Oh my God. There's so many things about the story. That's like a horror movie. They're like curled into a smile. I was frightened, but I was still able to reach down and shake her. She was stiff and cold. Yeah, poor kid. Martha and Andy went to the blacksmith shop to share the upsetting news with Trout, who immediately beelined for his home. Martha ran after him and witnessed Trout kneeling at his wife's side. Zona's body was perfectly straight with her feet together and one hand at her side while the other rested on her stomach. She noticed that her head seemed to list to one side, which she was like kind of laid out in a too precise way for tripping and falling down the stairs. Trout shouted for Martha to run and fetch the doctor. It was a little after 2 p.m. when Dr. Knapp arrived at the shoe home. So maybe it was closer to midday. I heard, again, varying accounts, but let's just say somewhere between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. when the doctor arrived. And it was apparent that Trout had been busy. He admitted to the doctor that after Martha had left, he had carried his dead wife upstairs where he had bathed her and then dressed her in the high-necked wedding dress with the stiff collar. He then closed her eyes and covered her face with a long black veil. This was unusual enough, but when Dr. Knapp attempted to examine the body, Trout became hostile and angry. The doctor explained that he needed to look at Zona to discover how she had passed away and again tried to check her neck and face, but Trout lifted her upper body into his arms and physically pushed the doctor away. Yeah, that's sus. Dr. Knapp chalked it up to the immense grief that he must be feeling. Because a lot of times it's really interesting. We put human, normal, empathetic feelings towards people who don't have those feelings. 
So he's not immediately feeling suspicious about this because he's thinking, well, if I lost my wife, I'd be really sad and maybe I wouldn't be acting normally. Yeah, but this is also his second wife now who's died. But I guess they don't know that. I don't think that they know this at this point, but they do find out shortly after the death because Mary Jane Heaster starts digging around. Good. So the doctor completely was like, okay, you're grieving. I understand it. I'm so sorry for your loss. And he said that he thought that the death might have been the result of an everlasting faint, which is an appellation term for a heart attack. Huh. I love that. An everlasting faint is so poetic for a heart attack. It's very poetic, but she's also so young and healthy. Yep. And he was basically saying, maybe it's that because I don't see many things that come on this this fast that would cause death this quickly. And then ultimately on her death certificate, he put actually that he believed it was as a result of childbirth, which was like a catch-all term for any death involved with pregnancy or miscarriage, seeing as that he could not examine the body. He also knew that he had been treating her for potential pregnancy symptoms because she was so sick to her stomach. So he's like, maybe something went wrong. Maybe something happened to the baby. Maybe she miscarried. Let's just go with that one. Let's just go with women's issues and put it on the death certificate. Okay. The word spread through the village and two family friends of the Heasters volunteered to share the grim news with Zona's family because they lived on a farm a considerable distance away from the town. And with the roads so snowy and closed off, it ended up taking hours for the men to reach the farmhouse and they arrived when the sun was setting. When Mary Jane was told about her daughter's death, she collapsed and screamed, the devil has killed her. After the family was able to gather themselves together, they made plans to bring Zona home for burial in nearby Sewell Chapel Cemetery and give the men money for a coffin. After they left, the surviving Heasters gathered around the fireplace in shock. Zona had left them only three months prior, and now she would never return. Yeah, it's so sad. Trout allowed the funeral carriage to take the body of his wife, but only if he was allowed to remain with the coffin the entire time. Once they arrived at the Heaster's farm and the wake began, Trout stuck like glue to the coffin side and would not allow anyone to touch Zona. Her head was placed between a deep pillow and a knotted sheet. He had wrapped a long scarf around her neck, telling people that that was how she had wished to be buried. Oh my God. I can't imagine the fury that Mary Jane. Just like anger. Yeah, it's making my blood boil. I also think that we're also talking about a time that's still extremely patriarchal. So the husband's wishes probably superseded her own. Yeah. Even though they had only been married for three months and had only known each other for less than four. Yeah, that's insane. The funeral was brief. And before Zona was placed into the cold ground, her mother gently removed the sheet and pillow. This was because the coffin couldn't actually shut with the extra stuffing in the coffin. So she gently removed them. And she offered to give them back to Trout because they had come from his house, obviously, but also they might be a reminder of his wife for him. He had chosen these articles for a reason, she believed. And he refused. He wanted nothing to do with them. He refused to even touch them. And then he refused to have anything to do with the family. He just left. So this entire time that she's been out of the ground, he's been obsessed with her. 
crying, acting like he can't be parted from her. He needs to be by her side. No one can touch her, his beloved wife. And then, boom, he's just totally fine and he's out of there. Yeah. As soon as there's nothing to cover up, obviously. This all tracks for him. For the next several nights, Mary Jane grieved, she prayed, and she wrestled with her feelings of anger and surety that Trout had been the one to put her daughter in the grave. And I'm sure that the grief was compounded, too, by the fact that they had been estranged and not getting along at the time of her death. Yeah, that's really hard because there's like they didn't get to have any sort of resolution. There's no resolution. And I think about every time think about when somebody passes away that you love, all you think about was the last thing that you said to them, your last interaction. And it sounded like for a family that was extremely close, especially the relationship between the mother and daughter, the harsh words had been exchanged and things had been said about her choices. And I'm sure that Mary Jane felt sick to her stomach about that as well. Yeah. So she began to direct her prayers to Zona directly. So she's praying to God. She's also praying to Zona. I'm sure to say, sorry, and I love you. And I wish I hadn't gone down like this, but also please, 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 please send me a sign. Please tell me, show me something that would tell me that my fears are founded or unfounded. If you don't send me a sign, then maybe there's nothing here. Yep. But the next day she was washing, she was laundering the things that Trout had left that had been used in the coffin. And the seemingly clean coffin sheet, when she put it into the water, bloomed a scarlet red. So I think it was the water, basically the water turned bright red. But there had been nothing on the sheet, so she didn't know where it was coming from. And apparently there were witnesses to this as well. So she laundered it and dried it. But every time she put this particular sheet in the water, the water turned red. Got a killer business idea? Make it a reality with Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling hand-knitted holiday scarves or vintage finds from around the world, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify, and you can too. Jesse, you know I am a very passionate Shopify user. Indeed I you still are. remember Yeah. <laughs> I still remember when I got the store up and running and it actually started seeing sales. That feeling was so exciting and empowering and it's something I'd love for other people to have the chance to experience as well. The little cha-ching on your phone when you get a sale is the best feeling in the world. <laughs> When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to start selling online today. That's shopify.com slash lovemurder. 
So Mary Jane felt for sure that this was otherworldly proof that a murder had occurred, but she still didn't know what to do. You can't take a magical bloody sheet thing to the police and say, look, this is proof. Here's the proof. And they'd be like, okay. So she continued to pray to God and to Zona for more. Then came the fateful night that I described in the episode opener where Zona visited Mary Jane in her childhood bed, depending on who you believe, wearing not the dress that she was buried in, but the dress that she had died in. Yep. There's another one that was saying that she was wearing the wedding dress, which I believe is what she was buried in too. So we don't know for Just sure. It's very Beetlejuice. It's very Beetlejuicy. And I think that's the image that I'm going to go with because I like what that evokes. The high neck, the collar. That first night, Zona only spun her head around her body as though to indicate her neck was broken. But she returned the next three nights and slowly told her mother the true events of the day of her murder. Zona told her mother that she had been feeling unwell that morning, but she fixed a meal for herself and for Trout, who would have been home for a meal break shortly. Exhausted, she set out a cold plate of bread, butter, and fruit. I also read that it was like apple butters and preserves. There was just like a whole array of different fruit, preserves, and butters. Yum. Which sounds delicious. (laughs) However, when either Trout, because I'm not sure if he had actually left the house, so either he came downstairs or he came back in from working, and when he saw what she had prepared for a meal... He flew into a rage because she had not prepared any meat. Ew. (laughs) Says the vegetarian. (laughs) So rude. Yes. And so a big fight ensued and he started taking her possessions and breaking them or otherwise throwing them out of the house. When she tried to stop him, that is when he wrapped his hands, his strong blacksmithing hands around her neck. And he choked her to death until she said blood was running out of her mouth. Oh, my God. Yes. It was very, very violent. She told her mother that Mary Jane would be able to find her bloody dress behind the house where Martha and Andy Jones lived because that's where Trout had hidden it. She described the spot. With her tale of murder and betrayal told, Zona said goodbye to her mother on that final night, the light fading around her as she twisted her unnatural neck to look at her mother as she left. Mary Jane sat with this visit for a couple of days, afraid that even her husband would think she was crazy or simply dreaming. Eventually, she worked up the courage to tell her family and a few close friends and neighbors. But the reaction was overwhelmingly positive. Many people had had similar suspicions about Trout and also by this time, rumors from the other town where he'd lived before had made their way to the Heaster family and to some of the people who lived in this area. So already they now found out that this was the second of his wives to die accidentally. So when she started confiding in people that she had had this ghostly experience, they did not tell her they were, she was crazy. They were like, you know, there might be something there. And in fact, they thought that she should go to the county prosecutor, John Alfred Preston, and see if he would be willing to hear her case, which he was. Now, Preston was not overly moved by the visions, and he did not necessarily believe that Zona's spirit had ratted out her husband. But he did send for Dr. Knapp to confirm that Zona had indeed died of natural causes. 
Well, Dr. Knapp admitted that he had not been allowed to examine the body at all and had been denied the opportunity to perform an autopsy by Trout. So he said, honestly, I can't tell you. And now that I'm thinking about it, because maybe his behavior wasn't grieving. Maybe he was trying to hide something. Good. Putting these pieces together. Yep. Now this interested Preston. He's like, I can't do anything with the ghost came to me and told me that he murdered me. So I'm going to have to go with the facts here. And the facts are that she didn't get an autopsy and this guy was being squirrely about it. With Mary Jane's and, of course, her family's approval, he ordered Zona to be exhumed and perform an autopsy upon her. Now, at this point, Preston informed Trout that they would be seeking answers in the death of his wife, but he was really sly about it because he's like, oh, but clearly, I mean, you had nothing to do with that, so this isn't a problem for you. If you were correct and truthful, then the autopsy will only confirm that Zona's death was accidental, and then this will be great for you because, you know, I've heard the rumors too. There's all these rumors flying around that you killed two wives, and we got to do this autopsy to clear your name, bud. That's why we're doing it. These rumors are swimming downstream. Yeah, we got to get ahead of this, Mr. Trout. Yeah, and then he was like, except for the fact that I'm going to make you be present at the autopsy. Ooh. And also, we're going to hold you in the county jail until we get this matter settled. <laughs> so not so great for you after all, but the outcome's going to be great for you, I'm sure. <laughs> right? Well, just behind Sewell Chapel, where Zona was buried, was a log cabin schoolhouse that was selected as the site of the autopsy, which is crazy. It's a schoolhouse. All classes were canceled on February 22nd, 1897, and the volunteers began their grim and tiring work of digging through the frozen ground to unearth Zona's casket. Yep. The casket was brought to the schoolhouse, and then her body was gently lifted and placed on two tables that had been pushed together. There, three doctors waited to examine Zona's body. There was the local Dr. Knapp, as well as two others with some more phenomenal names, Dr. Leancy Rupert and Dr. Lorenzo Houston McClung. Wow. <laughs> wow. I know it's making me think like Dr. Leancy Rupert is a wiry guy with those little round glasses and like a little, a little broom type mustache. But Dr. Lorenzo Houston McClung, he's the sexy one. <laughs> this is where my mind goes. The craziest thing about this autopsy, other than it's being held in a schoolhouse, is that it was also being performed in front of a constable, a judge, and a jury of five impartial Whoa. men, as well as the potential murderer who had basically a police escort with him to make sure he didn't get up to any hijinks. So they are doing this in front of an audience because we're talking about 1897 and there had to be multiple witnesses to these things because people lied and there's no way to verify without multiple witnesses or, in this case, a jury. No iPhones. Nope. No pictures. Nothing. In any case, there's a lot of people here. Well, a lot of men. Right. There's a lot of men here. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, Mary Jane Heaster wanted to be in the autopsy and they went letter because of her feminine sensibilities, I'm guessing. But also, I don't know if a mother should really see that anyway. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. So she was actually waiting outside the schoolhouse. I'm not sure because it was really cold out. I don't know if she was like right outside or if she was like in a building nearby. But she was on the scene waiting to hear the results of the autopsy somewhere outside of the actual schoolhouse. So the first thing that they learned was that Zona was incredibly well-preserved. The below-zero temperatures had kept the ground frozen, and Zona looked exactly as she had at the moment of her death a month prior. Wow. 
The examination began in Zona's stomach where they were kind of looking for poison because Mary Jane had also told them that her daughter had been feeling ill in the month or so leading up to the murder. And they did not actually find any evidence of poison. Again, it's 1897. Maybe there had been some, but it was easily absorbed into the system or something. So they didn't find any very obvious signs that she had been poisoned. However, they were able to see what her last meal was. And in her stomach was fruit, bread, and preserves, just like her ghost had said was her last meal. Stop it. Did she tell it anyone before? Okay. Oh, so my God. So one book says that she had, that she had told at least neighbors okay. and friends that part of the story. Then Katie Letcher Lyles said that she was more vague about the visitation and how she was killed. And then only after the autopsy picked up those details. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get into the, the he said, she said, or she said, she said in this case about whether she knew all along. I think for the sake of the story, I'm going to go with yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. She had told people. So <laughs> points to mama and ghost here. And then also they did look in her uterus and she did not have a baby. There was no evidence that she had recently miscarried or recently given birth in any capacity. So that whole, I don't know, maybe it's lady troubles out the window. Death. Yeah, that's out the window. It's gone. Well, apparently during this entire experience, Trout was repeatedly and loudly stating his innocence <laughs> from the corner. Yes. So he was trout pouting all over this place. But even he quieted down, however, when the doctors went to examine Zona's head and neck. When they removed the stiff collar of Zona's burial dress, her head immediately rolled to one side at an unnatural angle (sighs) and finger-shaped bruises were visible on her slender neck. Still? Still. Whoa. According to the man who wanted seven wives, newspapers reported that at the end, the doctors working around the head and neck suddenly began to whisper together. Then one of them turned to the man on the bale of the hay and said, well, Shu, we have found your wife's neck to have been broken. It was later reported in the Nicholas County News that then Shu's head dropped and all observers noted a change of expression that came over his face. The Pocahontas Times account on March 9th was most specific. The discovery was made that the neck was broken and the windpipe mashed. Oh, on the throat were the marks of fingers indicating that she had been choked. The examination disclosed that the neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebrae. The ligaments were torn and ruptured. The windpipe had been crushed at a point in the front of the neck. Trout Shoe was heard to say then, as he would many other times, they cannot prove that I did it. <sighs> okay, bro. Yeah. Interestingly, no cause was ever found for why Zona had felt so sick in the month or so leading up to her murder, which makes me think maybe he was poisoning her and they just didn't find it. Yeah, with some sort of like botanical or herb or yep. something. Yeah. Exactly. So Trout was arrested on the spot and charged with the murder of his wife, Zona Heaster Shoe. Mary Jane had not been allowed to attend the autopsy, like I said, but she was waiting right outside to get the news. And you can imagine her relief and probably amazement that her daughter had died exactly as her ghost had described and that her daughter's killer would be going to trial. Good. Good news all around. I mean, 
the best news that can come from this circumstance. Horrible circumstance. They also did search the area that Ghost Zona had indicated that they could find her bloody dress, and which was really interesting because this part, I think, is true for sure, is that Mary Jane had never been to Zona's home because she refused to go anywhere near Trout or his property. And she could describe perfectly the area where Zona said that this dress would be between her own home and the Joneses' home. So that's interesting because there was no way she should have known that. Okay. So she described the area and I believe, I don't know if it was her or if it was just the constables or the prosecutor, they went to that area to look and they did not find the bloody dress, but they found blood. They found evidence of blood. Whoa. So it seems likely that he had in the month between the murders and his arrest removed, of course, the bloody garment, which he probably had just thrown there during his quick cleanup and then went back to get rid of later. Did they find it with bloodhounds? I don't know. I have no idea. Just the the old timey bloodhounds just hanging around, ready to find a murder. (laughs) A trial date was set and Trout was repugnant every step of the way, including insinuating that it was nine-year-old Andy Jones who had actually murdered his wife. He did not. Yep, of course. In 2022 hindsight, it seems likely that Trout had specifically asked the black child to be the one who found his wife in order to have a better target for suspicion if the broken neck was discovered. Oh my God, he's disgusting. Disgusting. He's a nine-year-old boy. Who's permanently traumatized from what you sent him to go find. Forced him to do so that you could potentially set him up. Yes. Horrible. I can tail as old as time, too. So fucking obvious. Tail as old as time. <laughs> oh, God. No, don't. Let's not tie that to this this circumstance. I love that movie. Thankfully, it didn't even come close to working. No one believed it at all. And even if people had, if you actually walked down that path of somebody else doing it, it was very clear in the autopsy, even a month later, that she had been horrifically attacked. So... He wouldn't have mentioned it to the doctors or to the constable when he changed and bathed his wife that she her neck was broken. So it's like, why wouldn't you say that if that was the case anyway? And also, I don't believe this nine-year-old boy was capable of breaking somebody's windpipe with his bare hands. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going. Yeah, it makes zero sense. So this is not going to be an easy case for his defense attorneys, and not only just because he was obviously guilty, but also because apparently he compiled a list of 120 character witnesses that he ordered his attorneys to call to court on his behalf. He was an extremely difficult client. (laughs) He's like, this list of 120 people who like me, and I want you to call every single one of them to court so they say nice things about me at my trial. Wow, princess. Princess, indeed. A little princess trout pout. So, yeah, they did not. They said, no. Well, like, call your mom, okay? That's about (laughs) it. The trial kicked off on June 23rd, 1897. Mary Jean Heaster actually even rented a room in a boarding house in town, so she was able to be present for every single second of this trial. She's amazing. She's amazing. And it was, I guess, at a time that's pretty hard for farming people to be away. I think it was like a harvest time. Yeah. Or something was going on. We're talking about June 23rd, so that would make sense. And so her husband and her sons had to work on the farm 
but she was like, I'm not missing anything. That's just why she, because no one could cart her back and forth with a horse and carriage. She's like, I'm renting a room and I'm going to be there. And I'm going to look him in the eye and I'm going to be Zona's representative in this. Good thing they had seven boys at home ready to work. <laughs> they did. They did. Prosecutor Preston argued that Troutshu had murdered his wife of three months by strangling her with such force that her windpipe was crushed and her neck bones fractured. He then went to great lengths to conceal the murder. Witnesses for the prosecution included the three autopsy doctors, but also specifically Dr. Knapp, who could also testify to Trout's concerning behavior, refusal to allow him to examine Zona, and just all together, all of the, the ways he had tried to make it that no one would touch her. Andy and his mother, Martha, also testified. One person who was not called by the prosecution to testify was Mary Jane Heaster. Even though it was Mary Jane who had cracked the case with Zona's ghostly wisdom, the prosecutor thought that she might come across as too woo-woo, otherworldly, or worse, just plain crazy. Yep. He believed the evidence spoke for itself, and how they had arrived at opening the case didn't really matter. You know who did call Mary Jane to testify? The defense team, for exactly the same reason that the prosecutor hadn't put her on the stand. So messed up. They wanted to make her look crazy and they sought to discredit her as basically saying if they could get her to look unbalanced or not believable on the stand, then they could prove that the prosecutor's entire case was based on a grieving mentally ill woman who claimed to see visions of her dead daughter. Yeah, but then they figured out that they were real. And this yes, guy and actually this... strangled his wife with his hands. I'm sure the finger shape would even match. Well, yeah, this backfired terribly because while Mary Jane related the story of Zona's visitations, she was very strong and she was clear and she came across both likable and believable. Mary Jane comported herself so well and so earnestly that the prosecutor didn't even object to the testimony because he was kind of worried he was going to have to object to get the whole thing thrown out if it had gone sideways. But he's like, actually, she's doing a great job. And the defense couldn't do anything about it because they had called her as a witness. So they can't do anything about her testimony now. So the judge had no cause to declare this ghost hearsay as inadmissible. And he left it into the record for the jury to decide upon. So as a result, it was the only time that testimony of a ghost was accepted into a court record in a United States murder trial. Wow. <laughs> really interesting. So cool. On the sixth day of the trial, Trout Shu took the stand in his own defense and did not seem to win any supporters to his side. <laughs> From an account for the Greenbrier Independent, who wrote this on July 1st, 1897, they said, Shu was on the stand all Tuesday afternoon. He was given free reign and talked at great length, was very minute and particular in describing unimportant incidents, denied pretty much everything said by other witnesses, said the prosecution was all spite work, entered a positive denial of the charge against him, vehemently protested his innocence, called upon God to be his witness, admitted that he had served a term in the pen, declared that he dearly loved his wife and appealed to the jury to just look into his face and then say if he was guilty. His testimony, manner, and so forth made an unfavorable impression on the spectators. <laughs> there is no middle ground for the jury to take. The verdict, inevitably and logically, must be for murder in the first degree. The jury had no difficulties coming to that verdict. After less than an hour of deliberation, oh, they shit. declared... <laughs> less than an hour. 
they declared Edward, a.k.a. Trout, a.k.a. Erasmus Shoe, guilty of killing his wife. He narrowly avoided a hanging because also the, the fact that they did this in less than an hour is incredible because not only did they were like guilty, they also had to have an argument about whether or not they were going to hang him. Ten out of the 12 jurors wanted him to be hung. Whoa. It was a hung jury. Wow. We're really, we're really on a roll. We are. Wow, guys, I apologize for this episode. I really do. <laughs> Um, yeah, but because it was not unanimous, he was not going to be executed and he would be sentenced to life in prison, which is good. When Mary Jane heard the verdict, she uttered a prayer of thanks to God and felt an otherworldly sense of peace. She knew then that with the truth known and Zona's killer sentenced to life in prison, that Zona was finally at rest. All of the papers at the time commended Prosecutor Preston, Mary Jane Heaster, and the members of the jury and pretty much roasted Trout. They were not favorable to him even a little bit. Even his hometown newspaper, the Pocahontas Times, wrote, Shu is a bad man and he has no sympathy from the neighborhood in which he was raised. Wow. They're just putting him out with the trash. They are. They're like, <laughs> we have nothing to do with this guy. Yeah, people really, 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 really hated him. So much so that a mob of over 30 men formed to break into the local jail and hang him themselves. Whoa, that is some old-timey shit. That is a vigilante lynch mob. Luckily for Trout, a couple of farmers got wind of the plan and ratted them out to the sheriff. They had no love for Trout, but they were being wise and mature about this, and they knew that a mob going and forcibly removing him and then hanging him could result in civilian injury or death or law enforcement injury or death. So they told law enforcement as a way to avoid, hopefully, those casualties. The sheriff and his deputy were able to sneak Trout out of the jail and rush him to the Moundsville State Penitentiary disguised and under the cover of darkness. So he narrowly survived that experience. Trout was shunned by all of his former friends and family. There was absolutely no record of him ever receiving a visitor in prison, nor did it seem as though he made many friends. Broken and beat, he turned to his favorite pastime, art. In one bizarre drawing, he pictured himself and Zona beneath a tree in the forefront of the picture, but then in the background, it looks like they're in their caskets. Hmm. There's a lot of like symbolism going on too. I couldn't really parse through it. We'll definitely post this to the Instagram guys so you can see it. So for unknown reasons, Trout asked his jailer to mail the picture to his old blacksmith shop in Livesey's Mill where he met Zona. The original drawing is now on display at the North House Museum in Lewisburg, West Virginia. Crazy. Which is pretty cool. Some think maybe it was Trout's way of coming to terms with the act that had essentially put them both in their caskets because he was going to die in this horrible late 1800s, early 1900s prison. But I'd like to think that he drew a lot of pictures of Zona because she was haunting the shit out of him every night. That would be amazing. Yeah, and that he just has to draw her because she's just constantly there, like, screaming at him. But then she wouldn't be at peace. I know, I know. Yeah, that wouldn't be great. We want her at peace. Well, the couple did get a ghostly reunion all too soon when an influenza swept through the state pen in the early spring of 1900, killing a not yet 40-year-old trout after less than three years of his prison sentence served. Yeah. 
No one cared to claim his body, so he was buried in a prison cemetery called Whitegate. A flood in 1927 caused all of the grave markers to wash away. So he is lost to history, and we have no idea where he really is these days, and good riddance. Living well is the best revenge, and Mary Jane Heaster did so outliving Trout by almost 20 years. Yes. She maintained until the end of her life that Zona really had come to her those four evenings and that she had been like flesh and blood and certainly not a dream. Neighbors supported her claims, saying that she had told them the details of the murder before the autopsy was performed. So the big question is, was Mary Jane actually visited by Zona's spirit or did she make it up to force the prosecutor and constable to open up an investigation? Katie Letcher-Lyle asserts the latter in her book, The Man Who Wanted Seven Wives. While looking up newspapers around the time of Zona's death, Ms. Lyle reviewed an issue of the Greenbrier Independent that included Zona's death notice. It also included a story from Australia about a notorious case where a ghost was said to have solved his own murder as his ghost had been witnessed by multiple people pointing out to where his body was found and evidence gathered from that discovery ended up bringing his killer to justice. But years later, a dying man made a confession, and this was all in the article. He said that he had actually witnessed the murder and that he had been threatened with death himself if he went to the authorities. So in order to not directly rat out the murderer. He invented seeing the ghost and convinced enough people that they too were seeing it. And the town had something of a group hallucination until they all were seeing this ghost and it led to the discovery and then the killer was brought to justice. So it was it was never real. Yeah. Katie Letcher-Lyle writes at the close of her book, what really happened is this. Mrs. Heaster suspected Shu, read or heard the ghost story, and consciously decided to use it to construct one of her own in the hopes of collecting more witnesses to Zona's ghost, as had happened in the Australian story. Mary Jane Heaster, once her plan was formulated, went to Preston with a vague story of Zona's midnight appearance, believing that her real suspicions about her son-in-law were not enough. We know her story was vague because of the printed reason in the Greenbrier Independent for the autopsy that, quote, Trout Shoe was suspected of having brought about her death by violence or in some way unknown to her friends. Once the autopsy was performed, Mrs. Heaster then elaborated on her original story, making sure it dovetailed with the autopsy findings. By the time of her trial and the published ghost testimony, her story was set in stone for its hearers, who conveniently forgot its real evolution. Ironically, it was not a necessary ploy at all, nor was it a successful one since no one else ever claimed to have seen Zona in ethereal form. Trout Shu was convicted on circumstantial evidence, not the testimony of a ghost. The mystery, she wrote, of the Greenbrier ghost now appears to have been solved. That's what Katie Letcher-Lyle says. Authors of The Haunting of Zona Heaster Shoe, Nancy Richmond, and Misty Murray Walkup would disagree. They shared multiple letters that Mary Jane wrote to various researchers, never wavering from her story. They also contended that neighbors swore on the stand of details that Mary had revealed to them before the autopsy results were known. They also said she had a reputation as an unbelievably honest and forthright, God-fearing woman who was not prone to ever lying. But on a more personal note, they had experienced something that made them believe that Zona was communicating directly with them as well. 
So this is from the intro of The Haunting of Zona Heaster Shoe. Nancy Richmond wrote, When we set out to write this book, we had no idea that we would experience what seems to have been a paranormal encounter with Zona Heaster Shoe's ghost. But that is exactly what happened. Misty wanted to paint a portrait of Zona for the book's cover. There is a wedding photo of Zona wearing the dress that she was both married and buried in. However, the photo is in black and white, so there is no way to know what color her dress was. While discussing the matter, we printed out a copy of the wedding picture of Zona to be used as a reference for the portrait. The printer was set for black and white copies, so we were stunned when the lower portion of the picture, just covering the paper up to the neck of the dress, came out wine red. What? Needless to say, that is the color Misty chose for the dress. None of the other dozen or so documents we printed that day had any discoloration. And we truly feel that Zona was communicating with us. She may have wanted to tell us that her dress was red, or perhaps she was trying to prove to a new generation that she had indeed been murdered by her husband more than 100 years ago. There's always something about the printers. My mom had an experience with the printer around the time my papa passed away. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, within minutes of his passing, it lit up out of nowhere. Did it print something out? Like it ran through a piece of paper, and that was it. Wow. Yeah, there's some weird spiritual electronic thing. <laughs> That's incredible. I also think that is interesting, too, because the white paper turned red up to the neck, just like the sheet. Well, as for what I think, I know you didn't ask, Andy, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I believe, and you know this, this is why we always talk about gut instincts, is that sometimes the body knows something that your psyche can't really comprehend at that point. And I think that our gut instincts or, you know, some subconscious thing can be so strong that it's possible that they can manifest into dreams or visions. I don't think Mary Jane was lying. I don't think she was a liar. I truly believe she believed in what she said and that Zona had visited her. I mean, I also might go as far to say I believe that Zona really did visit her because I'm the podcaster that believes a ghost sent me a story. <laughs> Guys, episode 101, I still have not heard that it was requested by anyone. No one has come forward. I'm going to go with Jean visited me because it's wild. So yeah, so I don't know. But at the end of the day, whether it was really Zona's spirit or just mother's intuition or even just Mary Jane lying to get justice for her daughter like a badass, I say brava, mama. Well done. I do too. And I don't think yeah. it really matters what the it chain doesn't. of events were. She had a feeling that something was wrong and followed her gut and solved the crime. I feel like it was more her than the ghost. It is. It's interesting because it's always this is always billed as the Greenbrier ghost. It's actually a story of a mother's love and dedication. So it's a little, a little spooky and a little awe. Wow. In conclusion, don't mess with a mama bear. They're going to get you. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll hunt will. you down. We'll come for you. <laughs> yeah. I guess we can say that there is no karma fairy like a ghost karma fairy. Yes. Oh, hell yeah. She was full on ghost karma ferrying that up. And as always, trust your gut and your paranormal visitations so no one ends up murdered. Happy Halloween. Love you guys. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> 